So let's turn to 1 Corinthians now, and we're going to, uh, to, to continue to look at Paul's progression of thought uh, as he's bringing some correction to this church. But let's, let's pray as we jump in. Father, we thank you for our time of singing. We thank you for uh, the chance that we can gather uh, here, and even those at, at home. Lord, we pray that now you would address us through your word, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would transform us and change us. Lord, we don't want to be those who look into your perfect word and walk away unchanged. Uh, how, how foolish that is. Lord, we want to walk through those back doors different than when we came because of something that you've done in our hearts. So please do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul is bringing some correction but it's in the context of the seriousness of divisions in the church. And I wonder if you remember uh, those divisions at the surface, the divisions in the church uh, are, are attached to gifted leaders. Do you remember this? I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas and I follow Jesus. They had, they had attached themselves and given an over-significance to who preached the gospel to them, and they would kind of developed tribes based around their preferences and divisions had grown. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you find that the divisions are all about the anti-gospel rot of pride and pride connected to power and status. And we know all about that, don't we? We, we know all about pride that swirls around power and is connected to status. Think about power and power dynamics. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm no expert. I'm, I'm just an interested observer. But how does power over people exist or form? Let's just think about this for a minute. How does power exist or form? Well, for most of the history of the world, power is a function of superiority. If you are superior in whatever form and in whatever category, a power dynamic is created. It exists. And again, in the history of the world, this superiority can be real. It can be by virtue of titles or place in society. You have parents, you have teachers, bosses, presidents, kings, or queens. Or superiority could be perceived connected to all manner of arbitrary categories like race or gender or education or money or looks, whatever it is. Power at one level is connected to superiority. The king yells at the prince, who yells at the minister, who yells at the assistant, who yells at the cab driver, who yells at the beggar in the street, who kicks the dog. So if it's true that power is created by some real or perceived superiority, then think about it a little, bit, a little bit deeper. What is the basis of that superiority? Well, the answer, again, in the history of the world, is simply a difference. A difference. Superiority is created around a difference. Real or perceived superiority starts by creating or identifying a difference. Men versus women. Nobility versus peasant. Rich versus poor. Executives versus laborers. Jocks versus nerds. Strong versus weak. Beautiful versus ugly. 
I think you know what I'm talking about. Whatever it is. I'm, I'm reading a book right now about the Mayflower. And it's really interesting how in the earliest writings of the settlers, of the pilgrims, the earliest writings, they refer to the Native Americans, to the Indians, as savages. Like, how did they know? Like, where did they get that from? Savages. Except they perceived a difference between them. So think about this. You create a a difference, or you perceive a difference, and then human pride defaults to creating a category of superiority based on that difference, and a kind of power is born. Born in that relationship, power connected to status. I think this is the way of the world. Sadly, this had become the way of the church in Corinth. They had done the same thing. They had taken this this worldly process and applied it into the church of Jesus Christ, where the difference between who had preached the gospel to them was all that they needed to then, in human pride, create a category of superiority. I like Apollos better, which then created divisions. Our text today is all about somebodies and nobodies and the cross. And and it's going to proceed in a series of seven points that Paul makes. And we're going to follow them going forward. And then at the end, we're actually going to follow those points backward, back up to the top. And, And we're going to see how beautiful and how powerful his argument is and his instruction and his correction. So let's look at the first point that he makes in this lengthy section. The first point is the power of God is found in the foolishness of the cross. This is the first point. And find it in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. And we're going to go through to the end of the chapter, digging out all of these points, because Paul's making an argument here, and we need to follow it in order to learn what we're meant to learn. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, in verse 17, we covered this last week, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then this is our text, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is his first point. That the power of God is found in the foolishness of the cross. Now what's important to see is in verse 17, he speaks of the word of wisdom. He speaks about the word of wisdom. In verse 18, he speaks about the word of the cross. And that's intentional. He's making a direct comparison between the word of wisdom, which, by the way, isn't isn't wise like we think, smart or brilliant. It's more connected to the delivery of that word to the eloquence, to the, to the oratory that they so love. The word of wisdom is a word that is characterized by smooth and eloquent talk. And of course, the Corinthian Christians had embraced and valued the word of wisdom. But the word of the cross, meaning a word that is characterized by the cross is actually what Paul says is the very power of God. Look, the word of the cross was folly. The the word about a crucifixion was embarrassing. You have to picture it in your mind. 
Paul arrives in this city called Corinth. And whether he went into the synagogue, or whether he went into a house, or whether he went into the amphitheater, he would open his mouth and start talking about a crucifixion, a criminal's death, a Roman torture device. Like, as if we would, how would you react if, if somebody opened their mouth and started to describe to you in detail a botched electrocution? Or a man who drowned in a sewage tank? What would you do if, if on the screens we put up a live feed of a live beheading in the Middle East? It would be off-putting. You might leave the room. And yet Paul, in this city of wisdom and, and rhetoric and oratory, stands up and talks about a crucified son of God. And yet, in that very communication of the death of Jesus Christ, he says it's in that where the power of God exists. Here's a second point. The word of the cross is only God's power to those who are being saved. He says this in verse 18, for the word of the cross, again, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see the distinction and it's interesting here, it's, it's amazing here that Paul makes the only true distinction between human beings according to God. There really are only two kinds of people in the world according to God. And it's not all the distinctions that we make. There are those who believe and are being saved and there are those who are perishing. And what is the only difference between the two kind of people in the entire world? The only difference is what you do with the cross of Jesus Christ. To those who are being saved, to those who hear the message of a crucified son of God and simply believe and receive the message of the cross is the power of God to transform your life and your entire destiny, your eternity. But to those who are perishing, and don't let that word get lost on you. If, you. if you are not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. And I hope today God will save you and turn you from the category of perishing to saved. But to those who are perishing, the message of a crucified king, all the songs that we sang... We sing a lot about Jesus died for us. Look, for those who are being, for those who are perishing, this, this message is just stupid. It's just foolishness. It's embarrassing. It's, it's a scandal. Who cares? Easily ignored, easily dismissed, easily rejected. Because it doesn't make any sense to those who are perishing. But, but make no mistake, this is Paul's second point. In this world, you are either 
saved and will be eternally saved by the power of God that exists in the word characterized by the cross or you are perishing and will eternally perish. But then look at, at his third point. His third point is, is this. I think that he's saying that God never planned to use, by the way, worldly wisdom to save because worldly wisdom would never have led to the cross. So he's going to do some work now with regard to worldly wisdom, which they had so attached themselves to. He says this in verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Look, Paul's use of the Old Testament in these texts, by the way, they all point to the reality that God's plan of salvation was always going to be unexpected and surprising. And even upside down, always, this was God's plan, always, God was going to thwart the wisdom of the wise. And so Paul points it out. Just think about it. Who among all of the wise, and maybe that's, the Greeks, and who among all of the scribes? Maybe that's more the, the Jewish Christians. And who among all the orators, the debaters of this age, the eloquent? Who among all of them in the history of the world found their way to God and to his salvation through Jesus Christ? You know what the answer is? Zero. Zero of them did. The wisdom of the world, therefore, is folly because it never gets to the God who made us. Nor was the wisdom of the world able to accomplish what God accomplished through the cross. Look, the world cannot be saved through the world's wisdom. And actually, the bankruptcy of the world's wisdom was all part of God's design. You're attaching yourself to a sinking ship if you're enamored with the world's wisdom. Look, we just studied the, the book of Ecclesiastes, right? It's a wisdom book. And we said that, that the preacher was either Solomon himself or someone that was personifying Solomon, so the wisest man in the world, who we know as we walked through it had seen everything and, and done everything and experienced everything, and in the end he says what? Meaningless, meaningless, vanity. All is vanity. And then he gets to the end of the matter. When all is said and done, he gets to that point, right? This is the wisest man in the world, the, the collection of all wisdom. Do you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, when all has been said and done, when we get to the end of the matter and all is said and done, the only possible way that this could work itself out is if God sends his own son who is then crucified for sins and then raises again in the third day. That's the only way that this can happen. <laughs> like, like he's miles away from that, right? The wisdom of the world never leads you to a crucified king who would save a world of sinners. 
So the world's wisdom and the world's ways and the world's impressive-sounding philosophies and intriguing debates will never lead you to God and his son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for you and me. Here's his fourth point. Therefore, follow this argument, therefore, it is the content of what is preached that is the decisive factor. It is the content of what is preached that is the decisive factor in the eternity of every man and woman and not the style or the form. He says in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And what does Paul preach? Well, he's going to tell us in just a minute, Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Look, the other night we were, Marie and I were with Joel and Beth, and Joel was telling us about preaching the gospel in India and, and sharing how in these rallies, and you can picture them, these things happen all around the world, uh, but, but he was telling us that he was preaching the gospel, and yet you have this challenge because you've got a translator, and people flock to these kinds of occasions. And what Joel was committed to doing was preaching the gospel. And if you can imagine, it, it, it gets a little bit clunky, doesn't it? When you, uh, you're speaking English and you're proclaiming, and then that gets translated by somebody who's, who's maybe adjusting somewhat of what you said into the vernacular that might make sense, not changing it, but translating it. And from that clunkiness and that, that mechanism, when he said, Jesus died for your sins, and that translator says, Jesus died for your sins, right in that moment was the power of God to save men and women in that crowd. I wonder who shared Jesus with you. Were they impressive? Or, or were they pretty normal people? Was it articulate and eloquent? Did you need a celebrity to become a Christian before you thought about it? Because of the weight that, that they carry socially? Were you saved by listening to a well-known pastor? Some are. My mom was saved the preaching of David Wilkerson in the 1970s. I think I was probably saved by her sharing the gospel to me. What's the difference? Our, our, our Redeemer Kids teachers right now are preaching the gospel to our children right now. Words of eloquence and wisdom would any of these qualify to go to the Areopagus and give a speech that would impress the world? Or do, are any of these, or, or me for that matter, qualified to, to fly somewhere tomorrow and give a TED Talk that's going to get millions and millions of hits? No. Not at all. And praise God for this. This is what keeps me in the game. Because why wouldn't you all just listen to Tim Keller CDs the rest of your life? 
Because it doesn't matter the form of the message, the content of the message matters. And I can stand here and say, brothers and sisters, Jesus died for your sins. And if that goes airborne, the Spirit of God can change an entire eternity through just those words. It's the content of the message is what Paul is saying to them. And then he continues to show in point five, and this is kind of interesting because he, he makes a turn that I think you could say where he, he says that there are actually two kinds of people that are perishing. So we have two kinds of people in the world, but now we have two kinds of people who are perishing. He says in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the content. And this is a stumbling block to Jews. And it's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you've got this these people that are perishing and, and rejecting the message of the cross is either a stumbling block or folly. Even in Jesus' time, the Jews demanded signs from him, right? And eventually he said, no more. You crooked and evil generation, the only sign left is the sign of Jonah, which was a reference to his death and his resurrection. And of course, Greeks seek wisdom, we already know that. But if you think about both, there is a kind of arrogance at the heart of both, when anyone puts God on the spot. Jews demand signs. Greeks demand wisdom from God. You put God on the stand and essentially say to him, prove it to me. And prove it to me the way I want you to prove it to me. In other words, I will only believe if. This is what Don Carson says. He, he says the man for signs becomes the prototype of every condition human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. I will devote myself to this God if he heals my child. I will follow this Jesus if I can maintain my independence. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will turn from my sin and read the Bible if my marriage gets sorted out to my satisfaction. And then regarding those who seek wisdom, he says, they create entire structures of thought so as to maintain the delusion that they can explain everything. They think they are scientific, in control, powerful. And God, if he exists, must meet the high standards of their academic and philosophical prowess. And somehow God must fit into their system if he is to be given any sort of respectful hearing. In both Jews and Greeks, there is a powerful self-centeredness because God is not taken by trust. Look, the glory of the gospel that confronts every kind of human heart and mind is for both Jews and Greeks. By the way, anyone can get in on this. It's for everyone, it's for anyone. There's no difference in our need, therefore there's no difference in the offer of Christ to men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ on the cross represents the very power of God, think about it, to crush sin and to crush death. From the cross comes the very power of God to save all who believe. And the cross is God's wisdom. In God's wisdom, he made a plan where the substitutionary self-sacrifice of a perfect sin bearer would take the sin of the world and the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself so that men and women could be saved, not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This is the wisdom of God and the power of God found in the cross. Look, the greatest display of the power of God and the greatest display of the wisdom of God was the cross of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to this place where we started. Because think about it. If what Paul has just done has created a difference, right? And we talked in the beginning that that, that can be bad. Because difference leads to superiority, superiority leads to power. Did Paul just create a difference here? It's as if you can, you can tell that that is unthinkable for Paul, that what he is saying would turn into superiority among those who believe in Jesus. So look what he adds next. His sixth point is you are all nobodies. Plus, God did all the work. It's brilliant, isn't it? He says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing Things that are. I mean, he just opens up the fire hose on the birthday candle of pride, right? (laughs) Because think of who you were when God called you. Were you impressive? Were you of noble birth? In other words, which one of of us can say, God is lucky to have me? And honestly, I could see how he couldn't resist because of how impressive I was. And again, from worldly standards. Instead, and maybe this section is familiar to you, we're reminded of this beautiful upside down. It's it's just always going to be this way. who God is actually attracted to. I mean, just, just read your Bible. This is what God is like. He chooses nobodies. He chooses the broken. He chooses the weak. Men and women that, that mostly failed him. And some of them are only famous because of their colossal fail. 
You think about the, the ragtag group of disciples the, the Prince of Glory incarnate chose to hang out with for three years. Nobody's. Impressive? Noble birth? No, God, God has a plan to smash the pride of this world, to shame the wise by choosing the foolish, to shame the strong by choosing the weak. This is how God has always been. This is what God is like. And I think that we can all resonate with this and rejoice that God is not obsessed with somebody's because he would have overlooked us a long time ago, guys. Right? And I think that this text shows us a step toward humility when we consider ourselves and our, our calling. But embedded in this description of us isn't just our outward characteristics, but a definition of who we are according to God. Look, we see the, the, we, we see the parts where we were not this and not that and not that. But let me show you this. Look at it from God's perspective. This is the same verse. It says, consider your calling. And then not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things are. Do you see this from God's perspective? Your salvation, brothers and sisters, is all because of God. Your calling, you see that up there? Your calling is a function of God's choosing. God chose you from before the foundation of the world because of his great love for you. If God's love is everlasting, that doesn't start the moment that you were saved into everlasting future. Everlasting is all everlasting, right? God has loved you from all eternity and has chosen you. And then God called you by name and he summoned you to himself and he awakened your heart to believe. And by the way, just in case you don't get this, look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ. Why are you in Christ according to that phrase? It's because of him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God that is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Look, Paul turns into, into some deep waters here of theology. There is so much rich theology here. The doctrines of election and effectual calling of God that didn't bypass your mind and your heart and response to Jesus. It just accounts for it. This is how Charles Spurgeon famously recounts kind of this thing that was happening in his heart and mind one Sunday. He says, I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths of election and effectual calling in my own soul when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron, and I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man. 
that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. Here's how it happened. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. So if you daydream, go for it. If God produces something like this in your life, more power to you. He didn't believe it. The, the thought struck me as he's musing during the sermon, how did you come to be a Christian? And he says, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Look, you were not many wise, not many noble, bunch of nobodies. And yet, every one of you was chosen by God and called by God and saved by God. Who are the somebodies now? But point seven kind of lands us at, at, at Paul's main point of this whole thing. Here's, here's the argument he's been making and driving at. So therefore, how can there possibly be any boasting? How can there possibly, in light of all of this, how can there possibly be spiritual pride and boasting and divisions among the people of God? Look, all of this, this beautiful prose, I'd encourage you to just read this through. We didn't do this at the beginning. But it's, it's a beautiful paragraph in Scripture. And it, and it reads like a, a classic Paul argument that is so powerful and so beautiful and so theologically rich. But please know that all of the eloquent and powerful theology in 1 Corinthians 1 is directly aimed at a gospel problem among Christians. The problem of anti-gospel, anti-Christ divisions that spring from pride. Look again at verse 28 to the end of the chapter. He said, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that. Why? So that, because, so that, so that the result, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let no one who boasts boast, or let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Look, power, because of status, because of differences, 
are all turned on their head in this argument about Jesus and the gospel. Do you see it? And in the end, Paul is asking to you and to me, are you a Christian who has a superiority complex? Do you have spiritual pride for whatever reason and in whatever category in your heart? Superiority because of who you are or what you have. Has there, a, has there been a, a spiritual pride that has crept in your heart because of theological positions that you hold that are different than what others hold? Or because of political positions that are different than others? Or, or because you go to this church and not to that one? Or because of how much you make, or because of what family you come from, or because of your age, or because of your gender. What, what pride and superiority do you live out of towards others? Look, we all do. This sin so easily entangles us because it's the nature of man. Just start with a difference. And there are thousands of them among us. But leverage that difference with, spirit, with, with, with human pride, and all of a sudden you've become superior. And this stinks to high heaven, especially among Christians. How can this be? Especially, let's, let's go backwards. Let me put up these points for you and, and just go, go backwards. Start at the bottom, right? How can this be when there, there can be no boasting, there can be no pride, there can be no divisions because in the end, Jesus did all the work. It's because of him that you are in Christ and because of him, it was, it was God that chose us before anything we did, good or bad, anything before we were impressive to God or not, he had already chosen us. Plus, because of him, we were effectively called by name and our hearts were awakened at his voice. And remember, when we were awakened, we were nobodies in the world's eyes, right? And you weren't preached unassailable proofs of God through your own demand for signs and wisdom. You were preached Christ and him crucified. And that was a word of the cross, which was the true power of God to save you. So Corinthians, what are we doing here? Power trips that lead to divisions because you think you are better or because of who you follow or what you prefer? How can this be when all of the above, forward and backward, is true? This is, this is Paul's love for this church and his deep concern for them. This must not be for those who have truly heard a gospel of a self-sacrificing, humble king who goes to the weak and despised because that's what he was himself. And then looks us in the eyes and says our names and says in that moment of, of born again, follow me. 
into a world of love and humility and care and deference and consider others more important than yourself. Why? Because he who was in very nature God didn't consider himself or consider equality with God something that he needed to prove or grasp, but he made himself nothing. And he humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Of course, God vindicated him, and he rose again, and he is now highly exalted. So how do you and I apply this? What are we to think? Except, here's what we must learn, that divisions die when humility and love live. And humility and love thrive at the foot of the cross. That's, that's what we have to wrap our minds and hearts around. Divisions die when humility and love live, and humility and love thrive at the foot of the cross. Humility and love toward one another, and humility and love toward those in the world. Look, even in the world, power differentials are erased in the environment of true equality. True equality and true sameness erase superiority and power differentials. What Paul is saying is this only exists at the foot of the cross and in the shadow of the cross. Because who's different when you find yourself there looking up at the Son of God who was crucified for your sins? Who's arrogant and superior looking up at Jesus who bore the wrath of his father for the sins of the world? So where are you arrogant toward others, particularly believers? Where do you divide from others because of pride? Where do you elevate yourself above others in your life or how you treat others or expect to be treated, especially because of worldly categories? Look at Jeremiah 9, which is what Paul quoted. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I wonder what is your attitude toward those who are perishing, who don't know God. And all the while, looming over all of us is the cross of Jesus Christ that we caused because of our sin and that we deserve because of our sin. And a cross where a wrath that we will never receive was absorbed by him. Look, divisions die in the shadow of the cross, don't they? They have to. They have to. But humility and love thrives. So if you need to repent this morning, do it. There's a, a loving invitation from the Spirit of God to correct all of us in our own hearts, to refine us, to purify us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. Maybe you need to repent of some of your attitudes to God. Maybe you need to repent to someone in this room. 
But there is a grace that comes with repentance because when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, right? Don't we want to be a people where humility and love truly thrive in our hearts towards one another? Don't we? Then we must stay close to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray that humility and love would abound in us in the shadow of the cross. And that destructive and sinful divisions would die. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do only what you can do. We can see these verses and understand them and follow the, the progression of thought. But only you have power to break the pride inside of us. To break the anger Lord, to soften our hearts and, and, and by your spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, and joy and peace and patience and, and, and all the rest. Lord, this is a miracle that we're asking you to perform in our midst right now. Would you create humility and love in our hearts towards one another and towards those outside of these walls so that we could bring you glory that you deserve we would respond well to Jesus what you've done and that we reflect the light that you've called us to be in the world around us help us Jesus we pray Amen